reading this morning from Jeremiah 31 and Luke 22. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And from Luke twenty-two twenty, And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Thank you, Laura. Good morning. Happy New Year. Uh, I know I know most of you, most of you know me, but there are some that may not. My name is Doug Gamble. Uh, my wife and I have been uh, part of the Cole community family since 1989. Uh, there was a 13-year hiatus there where we were down in Central America ministering in Costa Rica. And as many of you may know, where it looks like we're heading back down there again in the fall. I'm excited about that. I've received a, an invitation to teach at a seminary down there. Uh, but we are just so thankful to be part of this body. And uh, this morning, I, uh, my wife was reminding me, it was, it was, we were talking about this, that I'm really glad to be here this morning because a year ago this morning, I woke up on New Year's Day with a terrible kidney stone attack, and I was in the hospital this hour, this day, one year ago. I'm feeling a lot better now, so it's really good. You know, when it comes to thinking about New Year's, there's, there's various perspectives, there's things we go through this time of year. Many of us like to look back on what happened in 2016. We reflect on the year. I like to watch the programs that, that, that tell us of all the, the newsworthy events that happened and all the accomplishments and all the failures. We think back to sort of celebrities that I grew up with seeing in the media that have passed away. I think of Muhammad Ali and, and Arnold Palmer and John Glenn and some others, Princess Leia even, you know. But uh, and then, of course, but there are those that we've lost that are closest, closer to us, like the Blakeman family has lost Clark that that may not make the the social headlines, but they're written in the book of God and the book of life. We we think about the turmoil that has happened, the coup attempts in Turkey, the the uh, terrorist attacks on our soil and on other soil, the turmoil of the election year, all these things. Now, there, were some good, there was some good news, right? After all, the Cubs did win, so that was good. Um, others look forward to the next year, to what this year will hold. What will be the new trends? Who will make the news? What will the stock market do? What will this new presidency mean for our country? And then we think more personally, we, maybe we make resolutions or we feel guilty about not making resolutions or we make them when we feel guilty about not keeping the resolutions. All that complicated stuff associated with that. I actually Googled resolutions. That's probably a mistake, but I'm going to read you six or seven titles, article titles about New Year's resolutions here. 
first one is 12 New Year's resolutions for introverts, the quiet revolution. Next one was 29 New Year's resolutions, make this your best year ever. Next one, 50 New Year's resolutions ideas and how to achieve each of them. I don't know about you, I'm getting tired. A hundred New Year's resolutions and resources to help stick with it. Then another one that was learn how to make a better New Year's resolution. Another <laughs> other one offered us a class. This online class wants to help you keep the New Year's resolutions. I guess you have to resolve to attend the to take the class in order to keep your. Res I'm not sure. Got kind of complicated for me there. And then finally, forget New Year's resolutions. Try New Year's intentions. That was. Then uh, the other approach is to just simply enjoy what this quiet, well, sometimes quiet holiday season holds for us because we, we get away from the pace of work and the pressures of work and get some days off and get to focus on family and to focus on the birth of our Savior, and we enjoy that. And then as that week passes, and now we're in the, 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 the time of year, the four Fs, right? Uh, family, friends, food, and football. That's what we're in now. And some of us really kind of soak that up. And I was so wanting the Huskies and Chris Peterson to do it yesterday. Didn't, didn't quite do it. What I'd like to do this morning is look at a passage that will involve us a little bit in all of those. Looking back, looking forward, and considering the present. It's this passage that Laura read from Jeremiah 31. And it's about the new covenant. So I, what I'm going to talk about today is the new covenant for the new year. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know what each of these hearts needs here today, but you do. And so I pray that you would get me out of the way and speak directly through your word to them today. That you would change our hearts, lift our souls, inform our minds, and give courage to us to move forward in this new year with faith and with a new degree of trust in you. We thank you that you love us so much that you keep coming after us that way. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the context of this passage in Jeremiah, Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. He wasn't able to bring much good news, and he didn't see a lot of real positive things happen as a result of his preaching. During his time, the people of Israel were carried off into captivity, to, into the Babylonian Empire. And Jeremiah and other passages in the Old Testament are very clear about why this happened. There's no mystery about this. It's because they had forsaken God, gone after other gods, ignored our God, trusted in their own way, rather than God's way. Quite literally, their sin had carried them away from the promised land. And this is one of the things that I think is really uh, important for us to be able to see is so often Israel's story, the people of God in the Old Testament and in the New, is our story. And that we can see our story in that story. I mean, haven't we all been in situations where we got carried away by our own sin, by our own stubbornness, situations where we ignored God and found ourselves far away from where we wanted to be and in some way estranged from God? That's the part of the miracle of God's Word. Is It's about a people in a specific time in history, but it speaks to us very radically and applicably today. And God always, in all of those stories, regroups a remnant. He's never lost. We're never lost. He always makes Himself available to us. Okay, We're not left alone or without direction ever. Now, he's going to unpack the New Covenant for us in this passage today, but he makes a reference to the Old Covenant first. And I think it re we really can't embrace the New Covenant appropriately without having a proper understanding of the Old Covenant. In verse 32, he says, The New Covenant will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, 
because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. God took them by the hand, whether as a bride or as a child out of Egypt, out of 400 years in captivity. The Israelites were steeped in the pagan, polytheistic religious system of the Egyptians. How to walk with God and who the God of heaven was, they didn't know. The whole first five books of the Bible are really God's orienting them about who he is as the creator God, the only God, and how life works under him. Because that was, this was all new to them. We grew up with these books. Those books weren't written for them until they got into the, to the wilderness. And then they began to learn about God. But they had all this new material to learn about who really was in charge of, of heaven, who made it, how does life work, and how to live under that. And so the, sort of the hallmark piece of the Old Covenant is those Ten Commandments. You know them. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath, honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not. Are you getting the message here? You shall. It's all about you shall. It's the commandments we're putting performance upon us in some way. We're asking us to move and act. But you know what? It wasn't very long before that whole thing got misunderstood. About some, somewhere because of our, the nature of our sin, our sin nature, and the arrogance and prides associated with it, we came to believe, as did the people of Israel, that this was somehow a how-to list to succeed with God. That if we did all these things, God would approve of us, and we'd get the blessings, we'd get the benefits, we'd get the material benefits somehow. Even the, even the non-Christian world in, in our culture thinks about the Ten Commandments kind of this way. Well, if they, we sort of feel like we keep the Ten Commandments. Well, then I'm, that means I'm basically a good person. But that's a misunderstanding of what the Old Covenant and what the Ten Commandments were meant to do. That was never intended to be sort of a, a list by which we could brag about how good we were or are. It was never intended for that. See, the Old Covenant really had two purposes. Two purposes. It was meant first to teach us about the character of God and life as it is rightly lived in his house, so to speak. They'd grown up in Pharaoh's house under all these other kind of belief systems and rules, and they were coming out, and now it's God's house. How do you live in God's house? One of my students just this semester, where I was, we were having a discussion about the Ten Commandments, and he said, well, the way I see it is these are the house rules for God. Here's, where, here's what happens when things... Here's how good things happen, healthy things, and here's where you get into trouble. Pretty simple and true. I was really thankful for how he put it. And I really think he's right. See, it's safest and best and healthiest, for example, for God to be at the top of our love list, at the top of our priority list, at the center of where we derive our meaning and purpose. And when he isn't there, danger and damage follow, inevitably. It's the safest and healthiest and best thing for us, for example, to honor our parents, to be faithful to our spouses no matter what, to be truthful to those around us no matter what, and to, be, to guard human life and to protect it. It's safe, best, and healthiest for us to cultivate contentment and not give in to covetousness. And when we don't do those things, danger and damage follow inevitably. This is the first purpose of the, of, the, of the Ten Commandments of the Old Covenant, to tell us what the character of God is like, what, what, the, what the house rules of this creation are, and how to live rightly in it, what the barriers and the, what the safeguards are and where the good places are. 
Second, the purpose of the Old Covenant was to lead us to Christ. Now, the original audience was looking forward to Christ, and we're looking back. But the purpose of it was to lead us to Christ. See, they weren't really meant, these Ten Commandments weren't meant to give us a list of how to succeed with God. They were meant to show us how we fail. They were meant to show us our sin, to expose to us. God already knew it, but He knew that we were prideful enough that we would ignore it or that we wouldn't see it very clearly. And so He needed a, a, a lesson for us to realize that you're not going to be able to do this. This shows us our need for Him. When we're enabled to be honest with ourselves, we know that we don't have God at His rightful place in our lives. We know we're not as honest as we should be, not as faithful and life-preserving as we should be. We know we're covetous rather than content. And it seems that whenever we get these rules, we just have this impish nature to want to break them, to want to see how far we can go with them instead of going for the good things they're meant to cultivate. In baseball terminology, we're 0 for 10. We're not batting well. And that's what they're meant to show us. This is what Paul concludes in Romans 7. He says, The very thing that I want to do, I don't do it. And the very thing I wish I didn't do, this I keep on doing. And then the conclusion he draws is the conclusion we're all supposed to draw. Who will save me from this body of death? Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need a rescuer. The purpose of those, that covenant was meant to reveal our sinfulness to us and to lead us to the place where it would be healed, to reveal our failure and to bring us to the point of where we would understand our need for a Savior, a rescuer, right? That's the basis upon which we can really understand this new covenant. Now, just a word about language here. When, we t when he talks about making a new covenant, the verb is one we've lost track of a little bit. It's to cut a covenant. We still use it when we think about cutting a check sometime. But it was a very vivid imagery. There would be a sacrificial animal cut in two, laid side to side, apart, and the two parties of the covenant were meant to walk through it with the, with the idea being, let this happen to me if I don't keep this covenant. Blood sacrifice right there, let this happen to me if I don't keep this covenant. That's, the, that's what that Old Testament verb means to make a covenant. Now let's look at the contents of the new covenant. It's in verses 33 and 34. He says, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, they, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. The first thing is to notice those early verbs. I will make. That is, I will cut, literally. I will put, I will write, I will put, I will be. You see, it's a deliberate and clear contrast with the you shall of the, of the Ten Commandments. You shall, he said, and you proved that you couldn't. Now I will. He does for us what we can't do for, him, for ourselves. This is the, the foundation of the New Covenant. It's that deliberate contrast, and you can't do it. Let me help you. Let me do it for you. He steps in in that. It's a covenant that's initiated by God. It's accomplished by God. It's His doing. Right? And He says there, He says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. The word for law is Torah. And it refers to the written word, as we know. But the meaning is the most important thing. It's not just the having of the written word. 
Like, it's not just that you have a Bible in your briefcase or on your desk or on your shelf or in your purse. It's the meaning and how it instructs us. The word for Torah also means instruction and direction. That's what matters about this whole thing, is how it comes into play in our lives. It's an interaction with the Word of God, not just having it. It's this living interaction with the Word of God. And he says he'll put it in our minds. Literally, he'll put it inside us. You see what's going on here? The new covenant here is that God will put inside of us this new internal guidance system, this new GPS. It's a new compass so that we can be correctly oriented toward God, His ways, His purposes, and His desires. This is a beautiful thing. And this is, isn't this really one of the most fundamental needs we have? I really think it is. We are so prone to go through life by a, our own little navigation system in which self is the primary factor. The needle points to self. And that's our, the way we navigate through life. And it's messed up. It's self-centered. It's a personalized compass, and it gets us into trouble all the time. Okay? That's the essence of this whole thing. You hear some people talk about the, this word postmodern. That's all it really is. It's the same thing. The idea being that, that we throw off all other authorities, we become our own authority. We define what's right and wrong. We define for ourselves what's good and bad, what's, what's purposeful and what's not, what's, what's worth living for and what's not. And we see it. It's invaded our culture. Okay? Think of this, just like some of the common names we throw around on a daily basis. Think about YouTube. You can be the center of the show. You can put your show on so everybody has to watch you. You're at the center of the show. Think of iPhones, the iCloud, iTunes. What's the first letter? I. It's all about me, isn't it? I, this is the way I create my world. It's all about the way I see it, the way I define it, the way I want to live it. Don't interfere. Facebook. What's that about? It offers you an opportunity to present your image precisely curated the way you want it so that you can package your presentation. It's all about you. It's postmodernism all over the place, right? Of course, of course, this is the underlying idea is that we're the center, we're the definer for ourselves of what's good and bad. That, but we call it postmodernism, but the irony is it's as old as Genesis 3. What did the snake promise? You can be like God, knowing good and evil. You can be your own God, in other words. You can define good and evil for yourselves. What Adam and Eve traded right there was God's way for their own way. They rejected God's compass and decided we can decide this for ourselves. You know, I just, I just hit this this week when I was looking at this passage. Adam and Eve literally had all the time in the world, after their little chat with the snake, to go and talk to God about that to debrief about this chat they'd had with that serpent, and they don't do it. Something about the way the snake came at them made them feel like it was urgent to act now on this deal. We have to always be careful about that. The enemy will often make, I've got to do this now. I've got we are members of eternity. We have all the time. We don't need to be rushed into anything. And when, when, when we're pressured to do that, it's a bad sign. Be careful. We need to be careful about that. So it's about trusting self over God, our own compass, a compass of our own creation. And every time we do it, it, it causes damage. Every time I do it, I damage myself and those around me. It's a mess. So that's why we need this new guidance system that God will put inside us. 
That's what God is doing in the new covenant. He's going to overwrite our own guidance system with his. Right? Further, he uses this language. He says that he will write it on our hearts. I want us to think about that for just a minute. I think the traditional kind of way we think about this is that we will know the word of God by heart. And that's part of the meaning. And we should know the word of God by heart. And we need to take advantage of every possibility, every avenue the Lord gives us to fulfill this part of his promise. We have the word of God richly around us. And we need to be engaging in Bible studies for ourselves and with others and soaking up all the teaching we can so we absorb the truth that God has given us. That's part of what this means. That's an important part of what it means to have it written on our hearts. But I think there's a little bit more to it than that as well that we don't often explore. It is this, but it's more. It is making God's way a thing of the heart, a living heart. It's God's way participating in a heart of human flesh, not like it on a tablet of stone. You see, the popular belief outside is that God's law is stiff and formulaic, like it's a thing of stone. But it's meant to live and dwell in a human heart. It will make us humane in every sense of the word. See, God's word is pro-life in every way. There is nothing here in his law, in his instruction and direction that's not good for us. Nothing. It's all an expression of his love. Even where there are limits that we chafe against, they're good things. They're pro-life things. They give us life, right? They're there for our health and safety. They're expressions of his love. In reality, he's telling us where the cliffs are, where the snakes are, and where the green pasture is. Because otherwise we wouldn't know it. We're kind of dumb sheep, right? And that's what he's putting inside the human heart. So when God says that, he is making us more human than we can ever be when we're doing our own self-guided compass, right? He's making us more humane than we are when we're self-guided. The gospel is about heart issues from first to last. And God arranged life such that the gospel would always be communicated from one human heart to another. He could have written across the sky, but he didn't. Instead, he sent it through the heart of his son. And they passed that on to the heart of the disciples. And then we pass it on to each other via the human heart. That's the beautiful way. The gospel is always a gospel of incarnation. Life the life of God being communicated through human hearts. It's about the change of heart. And the way that happens is through God's initiation on our hearts, putting his way, his guidance system, his truth inside of us. Paul calls it the great mystery in in Colossians. He says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now think about what intimacy this suggests. That's one of the other beautiful parts of this whole picture. Verse 34 in our passage says, I will be their God and they will be my people. It's easy to kind of gloss over that too quickly. Uh, But there's a lot of depth here. Notice, I will be their God. Look at the aspect of those. Look at the pronouns there. God is saying that under the new covenant, he belongs to us and that we belong to him. What a humbling of God that he would ever say that he belongs to any human. But he does. A remarkable thing. I, I, in pondering this verse this week, this last week, I was... uh, I, two verses flashed in my mind that came straight out of the Song of Solomon, where the husband says to him, you know, that's the love poem, but the poem about love between a man and his wife. And one of the verses where the husband says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And you think about the, the closeness 
the sense of belonging that a, an engaged couple looks forward to, in, to when they're married. And that's one of the richest things that a marriage can bring is this notion of belonging to each other. And, of course, we move that into the New Testament, and that is meant to be an illustration of our relationship with Christ himself. There's this intimacy that we don't, we don't, we don't go deep enough with that this passage is profoundly deep in. The other union that it's, that it's likened to is the union between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Their closeness and their intimacy is meant to be our intimacy with God. That's what Jesus says in his prayer in John, John 17, that great priestly prayer. He says that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That intimacy is the hallmark of what it means to be a believer. And that's what's going to communicate to the rest of the world that this thing has the more, more worth than anything else on the face of the planet. That's all in that package of I will be their God and they will be my people. But the intimacy spills over in the next part of that verse. Look at verse 34. He says, No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. The verb there is know. Okay? And if you've studied the Old Testament very much, you know this is a pretty profound word. It's the word used for the sexual intimacy between a man and his wife. That's what it means. This is what God is promising us, that kind of intimacy with himself. It's not superficial. It's not token. It's knowing and being known and us having celebration in that. And it is out of that that then we then communicate as a body of Christ. Okay? Notice, the idea here is you don't, we, don't have to teach, I don't, we don't have to teach other to know the Lord. We, each of us, when we give our lives to Christ, when, when this new covenant life comes into us, we know the Lord. He's talking to us. And it's on that basis that we can then communicate to each other. It's not that we're not going to have teaching anymore. It's that we're all going to have learning directly from God through our hearts as he has changed us. Right? The new covenant means the spirit of God that dwells in us is the basis for our communication and fellowship. We encourage each other's walk as we discuss our lives from the things that God is doing. This is a new part of our belonging to each other. This is what we have, this beautiful advantage we have as the community of Christ is, is that we, God is speaking to all of us, to each other. Notice from the greatest to the least. Uh, what does he say? The greatest to the least. From the gray hairs towards the young ones. From the young ones towards the gray hairs. I, I'm not kidding you. I learn all, every week from my students at Coal Valley Christian School. They come up with questions and ideas for me. I'm an old guy, and these guys bring new ideas out of the Bible that I never saw before. It's beautiful. And I think, how come I not seen that? It's because the Spirit of God is in them. He's talking to them, and He's talking to me. And I share things with them that they hadn't seen. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That's the way we're supposed to be interacting with it because God is sharing things with you that your neighbor needs to hear, and vice versa. Can I say then that I would really encourage us all in 2017 to, to be intentional about communicating with each other in this way about what God is saying to us, what God is uh, working on in our lives. It is so easy for us to just rise to the level of superficiality in our conversations. It's easy to talk about the football, the weather, the cold, the snow, whatever it is. But we're missing out on this tremendous opportunity. We say, Do you know what, what God is doing in my life right now? Can I share this with you? Wow, that's... 
That's the meaningful intersection of our lives with God and with each other. Where who knows what he'll do when we can stop and share at that level. Now, pause, step back here. The assertions in the New Covenant are, are pretty lofty, are they not? They're pretty grand. And if somebody was on the outside and they looked in at this, and they'd say, come on, that's too good to be true. How can that, how can that be? I mean, to think, after all, that the creator of the universe would initiate a covenant with the likes of us, that he would put his truth in our hearts and in our minds and souls, and that he would allow us to know him and that he would belong to us and us to him, that seems too good to be true. Sort of the natural question is, how can this possibly be? How could it be? And I think he's answering that in verse 34 at the end. He says, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. For is the word because. We, we can't overlook it. This, this is the reason that all of the other stuff of the new covenant can happen. And notice the word wickedness and sin is there. We have to reckon with it. We can't deny it. We have to realize that we need forgiveness in order to proceed with this relationship with God. We have to be honest with who we are as sinners, as failures and in our weakness, right? This means honesty with ourselves and with others. This means being vulnerable. And this means seeing ourselves as we really are, and that means a profound dose of humility for all of us. That's kind of the entry point for this whole thing. And forgiveness is essential because the wrong of sin has to be dealt with. No relationship moves forward where forgiveness doesn't exist. No relationship moves forward where forgiveness does not exist. And part of God's being good is that he handles the things that go wrong and that wrong is dealt with, injustice is dealt with. You know, you and I always enjoy it when the authorities in our lives, whether it's our parents, our teachers, or the, the traffic cop that pulls us over, kind of looks the other way and says, oh, it's okay this time. But when the authorities don't handle injustice around us and it bumps into us, we cry unfair, we cry unjust. For God to be good, justice has to be achieved, right? And we know, at least most of us in this room, know how he achieved it. But I want to turn to Luke chapter 22 for one little verse of Jesus to make sure we see it in the light of this new covenant. In Luke chapter 22, we're in the sermon on the... Uh, no, no, we're in the uh, final supper, last supper, just a few hours from the, from the cross. Jesus is heavy of heart, but he's communicating these, these final words before the cross to his disciples. And in verse 20, he says, And likewise he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He couldn't be clearer. The new covenant is accomplished, is made available to us through the pouring out of Jesus' blood. He's the one who is cut for this covenant. It's his blood that ratifies this covenant. In American culture today, we don't have very many more things that are sacred anymore. Marriage is not really considered very sacred. Certainly the sexual union between husband and wife, which was kind of always held up to be a sacred thing, it's profane now. It's horrible what's happened to it, right? Nothing much is sacred anymore, unless maybe a little bit still, the idea of the shedding of blood. We still have some intuitive sense that that is a deeply sacred thing. You know, not long after the, the, the Ten Commandments were given to the people as they came out of the Exodus, God instituted the sacrificial system, right? 
because it was clear that once the commandments arrived, they were going to recognize their sin. And what do we do with sin? The sacrificial system was meant to picture what we do with sin. It taught, if anything about that sacrificial system taught us, it taught the very truth that the writer of Hebrews highlights when he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus brings his blood shed on the cross. It's God planned, God initiated, God accomplished at the cross. Can anything be more intimate than being connected by blood? We have a blood-borne relationship with Jesus. I want us to recognize that, to appreciate it more than we do. We gloss over it. But there's the level of intimacy that's available to us. And most of all, I want us to believe and trust what it means, what God has given us. He says it's true. He says He has given Himself for us to provide what we need. Do we believe it? And how does that, what does it look like to believe that on a daily basis? Where do we go from here, in other words? What is it going to look like to follow the new covenant in this year? I just have three or four things to suggest here as I wrap up. First, I want to encourage us all to look what God is doing in the present. Not so much what would Jesus do, but can we cultivate the habit of legitimately questioning on a daily basis, maybe on an hourly basis, what's God doing here right now? My guess is that if we think about it just a little bit, each of us knows ways that God is acting now, things that he is seeking for us to trust him with right now, areas where he wants to trust him more. Maybe it's something that you need to do. Get up out of your chair and go take care of this thing now. Maybe it's a conversation you need to have that you have been delaying. Maybe it's something you need to quit doing that has a hold on you. Or maybe it's something you need to quit saying. Maybe there's somebody you need to forgive. Maybe there's someone you need to ask forgiveness of. Maybe there are wounds that you have in your heart and in your mind and in your soul that just need to be brought to God and dealt with. Maybe you're going to need to ask for help to to do that. We often need another party, another person who knows the Lord to seek counsel and heal, healing for those wounds and wisdom about how to handle those wounds. Maybe there's a ministry that God, you know, He really wants you to become involved with. Maybe there's a refugee family here in town. Maybe there's a teaching of a Sunday school class. Maybe it's starting a Bible study someplace. We, as I, can, as I mentioned earlier, Laura and I are considering, you know, we're thinking we're going to head back to Costa Rica in the fall. Well, immediately as we think about that, all kinds of obstacles seem to come in the way that we need, I need to trust him with. Whether it's about funding, whether it's about being adequate to teach these classes in another language, all sorts of other things. But my guess is that God is doing something right. In fact, I know he is. He's always up to something. Every time, all the time. And as is typical... In a week in which I was preparing a sermon like that, God gives me sort of an object lesson. He doesn't let me off the hook with these kind of things. This one is about potato peels. Saturday, Christmas Eve. We did our Christmas all on Christmas Eve, open packages in the morning, and Laura put the turkey in such that we would be able to eat about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. My involvement with Christmas dinner is always some just sort of satellite operation. She has the mastermind. She's got everything going, and I participate in one little token way typically. So this time 
I volunteered as tribute to be the mashed potato maker. All right? So first thing you got to do is get those potatoes peeled. So I asked my daughter, Ellie, to help us help me peel the potatoes. We got those taken care of, got them all put in a bowl, ready to boil. We wanted to get the potatoes made so that we could free up stove space for the other things that were going to be in play, right? So Laura's, you know, juggling about 15 things at the time. And I, I say, thanks, Ellie. And I got all these potato peels and I gather them up real quick and I shove them right down the garbage disposal, hit the water and hit the switch. Some of you are, know what's going on. And, of course, within seconds, this goo starts to rise up out of the sink. They didn't go down. Laura walks over and says, hmm, did you put the potato peels down there? I said, yeah. She says, you can't do that. <laughs> I'm 56 years old. How come I didn't get that memo somewhere? <laughs> I swear I've peeled potatoes. I swear they've gone down the disposal before. I don't know. what. And so now I had a mess on my hands. Christmas dinner is on the way, supposed to be on the way. And I got a mess in the sink. And I've done it. No excuse. Right? So what do I do? So, so uh, YouTube, baking soda, and vinegar. And boiling water is going to take care of this thing for me. I run to the cupboard. We're out of vinegar. Clock's ticking. I need to go to the store to get some vinegar. Laura says, well, relax. Let's just have dinner. We'll worry about this later. Don't worry about it. Let's have a nice dinner. No, no. I, don't, I won't let it rest. I run grab the vinegar, come back, and I get the, you know, the baking soda down there, vinegar, it's all bubbling, toiling, troubling, all that stuff, and i got to wait to pour the hot water down there. And in that 15-minute wait where i got to wait and let the water boil, I decide I'll help solve the problems I'm creating, but I'll take on more of the dinner preparations. So I start fussing around with the stuffing. I start fussing around with the vegetables, and I am making a mess and causing stress for everybody. Right? Laura says, what are you doing? Relax. I've got all the... Quit doing that stuff. You're not helping anybody. But I felt like I had to do more because I had messed up. And I wanted to feel better about myself, right? Right? So anyway, it doesn't work. So Luke's still downtown. I give Luke, Luke, bring some more vinegar. i got to try round two. Sure thing, Dad. So it's a big tea. Everybody's focusing on the dumb sink, you know? So anyway, Luke shows up, and I prepare the next kind of attack of vinegar and baking soda. But it's time for dinner now. Dinner's on the table. Me, the spiritual leader, we're going to pray. I pray, and i got one eye on the sink the whole time. Because that water's boiling another 10 minutes. I mean, it's going to be cleared out, right? And Mike, I've got all the family home. We've got a beautiful meal, and I'm only about half there. Because I'm worried about the sink. I've got a Savior who gave his life for me, and I can't trust him with the kitchen sink. Ten minutes in, I say, okay, I'm going to try it. Now the water's boiling. I pour it down, hit that. It all comes up again. I've failed again. We have the rest of the Christmas dinner, and we're, we're going to we come to the Christmas Eve service. I think it was pretty good. I was kind of here, you know. But Laura, somewhere along the way, had looked up this other thing on YouTube. She did a better search than I did. And she said, you know, we can just undo those pipes on the bottom and just clear that mess out of there. And I said, no, I'm not opening up pipes down there. That's going to cause a flood and everything else. But then I'm thinking, calling a plumber on Christmas Eve? That's going to be astronomical if we can get one. We've got to wash these dishes and everything. I'm in a fret. Am I trusting God? <sighs> Not even a little bit here. That sink is still in trouble while we're at the Christmas Eve service. We go and watch, look at the Christmas lights around town. About 8.30 at night, we come back home. And Laura says, Doug, what do you say we just tried that thing? Okay. So we team up. Get the bucket, the wrench, the flashlights and everything. We're down there underneath. 
15 minutes, we got it all fixed. The thing's working great. We've teamed up and we kind of high five. It was one of the high points of my day. And if I had just not messed with the rest of Christmas by trusting God a little bit, that whole thing would have been a whole lot more enjoyable, right? But I didn't ask, what is God doing now? He's asking me to be patient, to trust Him with the kitchen sink, right? And of course, He wants us to trust us with a lot more than that. But I had a hard time with that one. Second thing, for 2017, I would like encourage, to encourage us to do less. We live lives that are so busy, and we believe, the culture tells us that if we're busy, that is def, by definition good. That somehow indicates that we have purpose. There are so many good opportunities in a valley like this for our kids, for ourselves. There's so many. We call it FOMO, the fear of missing out. And we think, oh, no, if I don't do that, I'll, I'll, I'll miss out. I don't want to miss out on that. I don't. And you know what? The fear of missing out really is the way we miss out on the most important thing. We need to take charge of our time and cultivate what God has for us in this new covenant. There is something much deeper and richer there than all of this other stuff. The opportunities are good, but we can't forsake what God is offering us here for those things. Third, just trust God with more of our lives. We can all identify areas where we have a hard time trusting Him. Can we ask Him, Lord, will you please help me to trust you more with this area, whether it's finances, whether it's our management of time, whether it's our communication, our marriage, our parenting, whatever it might be, right? And it really is about taking advantage of this intimacy that God offers us. We only touch this, just the superficial part of that whole thing. We can go much, much deeper. There's so many more riches available to us than we seek for Him for. We have a blood relationship with Him. We can release and surrender in ways that we haven't even thought of yet. And I want to encourage us in 2017 to do that. And the fourth one, of course, don't put potato peels down the garbage disposal. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank You for, this, for initiating the new covenant. We're lost without it. We're lost without it. We are inadequate. We're stubborn. Thank you for breaking through that. Help us just to be comfortable with inadequacy and to move forward by faith in your adequacy, to trust you for more things, to help us, give us eyes to see how you're working in the present right now, what you are doing, and to release to it and to surrender to it. Lord, we love you. Help us. Give us the courage to, to trust you in a deeper and more intimate way so that you'll bring that fruit in us and to us and through us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.